It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, Very excited about today's episode we have had uh um enormous logistical scheduling issues uh all in good faith i got sick she got sick um there was a war all sorts of things i had to sacrifice 50 goats to ball but anyway we made it all work and um we have uh my ai colleague formerly of the manhattan institute um our our um our sort of sibling think tank in washington dc i mean in new york city um, author of a, the book Game of Loans and her latest book, uh, Making College Pay. Um, and when you say that, you're supposed to say that as you make a sort of a twisting, pinching motion with your hand, um, like you're torturing a, a younger brother or something like that. Um, we have Beth Akers, uh, now a, a, a full-fledged colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. And from what I can tell, the foremost expert on all things student loan, which is why ever since we Biden made that stu- made those announcements about student loans or th- those trial balloons, we've been trying to get her on. So, Beth, thank you so much for being here. Jonah, thanks for having me. I'm really happy we finally connected through all of that. So, uh, this is like one of these, uh, as much as anything, informational kind of things where, you know. Uh, listeners can go and be like, okay, now I understand the thing. Right. Um, and so why don't we just sort of start with the basics, like how much student debt is out there? Who, um, who, who holds most of the debt, who owes most of the debt, yada, yada, yada. And then we can sort of use that as a springboard to keep, to get going. Sounds good. Okay. So if you've read a newspaper article recently, you will have read that there is $1.6 trillion in outstanding student debt in the economy. That debt, interestingly enough, has been on hold. Nobody has been paying it for two years now, um, starting at the beginning of, or really before the economic downturn from COVID, President Trump stopped payments on those loans um, as sort of an economic stimulus or maybe out of just caution, really, because we didn't know what was coming. Um, and so we have got um, that that debt just sitting there. So who has that debt? I think if you don't follow this issue closely, you might think, okay, people who don't have a lot of money when they go to college, they have to borrow to pay. 
that makes some sense. The reality is that people who borrow the most come from the most well-off families. That's because they go to the most expensive colleges and then they stay in school for the longest. Either they go all the way through their undergrad program or sometimes go on to finish graduate professional schools. And so it's those people that come from the most affluent families that have the most debt, that take on the most debt. And then people who have debt go on to be themselves the most affluent in the economy. So 60% of debt is held by the top 40% of earners in the economy. Um, That just goes to show that it's the people who are sitting on those big balances who are also high earners. Of course, you can think of doctors and lawyers. That's what we often write about in the op-eds. That's average, right? Of course, there are also some people who have high balances that are not high earners. And we have to have policy address that too. But for the most part, when you think about what is the typical experience, it's somebody who borrows $30,000 for undergraduate, go on to make an extra million dollars over the course of their career because they have that degree um, and pay back their loans with about 4% of their monthly income being spent on monthly loan repayments. So the typical borrower is actually this more well-off individual with a really modest repayment burden relative to their income. And the horror stories that we talk the most about are often profiled in popular media or by politicians pushing these huge interventions uh, tend to be outliers. And that's not to say that they are not real or they don't require us to have some sort of intervention, but we really need to get away from thinking of that horror story as the typical experience for student borrowers. And that's what I've sort of yell out into the world about every single day is trying to get people to understand what is the what is the real situation here. I mean, all right, so, so some, some clarifying things. I mean, first of all, I think you'd agree that with any large population set, you are going to find counterexamples to any statement, right? I mean, of course. Just, and so in a media culture where you're relying on the general, the general hacks rule, I know you're not a journalist and don't come the way I am, but like the general rule is three examples equals a trend. And um, because that's what gets you to 750 words with three examples and that works on people's brains. That doesn't, but in a population of millions of people, there are three examples. There are examples of 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 one-armed albinos who, uh, you know, uh, coming from hard scrabble lives, who borrowed money so that they could become the only heart surgeon in their town or whatever. Right? I mean, like you're always going to have those kinds of examples. So I mean, I, I just the plural of anecdote isn't necessarily data. That said, um. Can you sort of like get a little more granular on this where you say the debt is held by the most affluent people? I mean, the the truly affluent people don't take out loans at all, right? So we're talking about sort of the second half of the top quintile or something like that. I mean, what what, what do you mean when you say the most affluent people have the most debt? Like, who are we talking about? Well, so so the statistic I gave you is that the top 40% of earners in the economy hold 60% of the outstanding debt and make about three quarters of the monthly payments. Um, so it is, in fact, the high earners who have the most debt. Would You kind of want to think about it on, on the back end and on the front end. On the back end, people who have debt have invested in education and have access to high earnings occupations, right? So that's why you get them to be high earners. On the front end, you get people who come from relatively well-off households who maybe their parents are helping them pay for college, um, and they take on debt for um, 
a, a couple of reasons. One, because they, they spend the most, right? Because they're going to the most expensive colleges. But also something that we often miss is that there's basically um, an arbitrage opportunity because federal student loans are offered at a subsidized interest rate. If you have the ability to borrow federal student loans, even if you have the cash, the wise move financially is to take the loans and then put that money into your 401k or into your E-Trade account, something like that. So savvy consumers, even if they have cash on the sidelines, which is, of course, not everyone, but is a relatively you know small group of well-off families, they should be borrowing. And the data shows that they are. So um, again, you know, and the least well-off people are the least likely statistically to go to college, right? So those people are excluded from the conversation altogether. So you end up with really getting this student loan problem is a problem for the rich. And again, there are, you know, groups of people who are not rich, who have student loans, who are struggling. And we can talk more about that. But generally speaking, this is a problem for well-off people in our economy. And so at the beginning, you also said um, that no one's been paying any uh, of the student loans because we've had this moratorium going on. Is that true for all kinds of student debt or is just federal debt and federal debt makes up the biggest chunk of it? Um, like if you took out a loan, some schools do their own financing. That wasn't affected by any of that stuff, right? I'm just trying to get a sense of yep. like, are there outliers? When we talk about that $1.6 trillion in debt, we're largely talking about federal student loans. So 90% or over 90% of that outstanding balance is through the federal lending program, which means it's all centrally administered by the Department of Education. It's all under the authority of this moratorium that stopped payments. People also take on private student debt to go to college. Um, that tends to be at much higher interest rates, looks more like a credit card. And that, yes, did not stop payments um, during the economic downturn. A lot of it is actually people who borrow for graduate degrees. The private student loan market is a market. It's like any other credit market. So the lenders look out at the borrower and say, does it look like you're going to be able to repay this back to me? And if not, they don't make the loan. And so actually default rates on private student loans are pretty low because it tends to be given to people who are making a pretty solid investment in themselves by going to business school or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So, and now like, um, what share of the debt that is of, of the people who are in, I'm going to, how to break this down of the people who owe a lot in student debt. Um, how much of this is actually because they went to grad school and what kinds of grad schools did they, they go to, right? Cause one of the things you'll often hear, which I'm very sympathetic to is, we shouldn't be bailing out people who got MBAs or MDs because they're going to be able to make back their loans. And we kind of shouldn't be paying back, paying off people who got master's degrees in an advanced puppetry, because why should we be subsidizing their incredibly stupid educational choices? Um, so like how much of it is because of grad school and, and what kind of grad school debt, what kind of grad schools are generating the debt? 
Well, I should say it's important to realize that there is a cap on borrowing from the federal loan program for undergraduate studies. So the average borrower comes out with about $30,000 from a bachelor's degree, and that's because they're hitting the the maximum borrowing levels that's allowable through that program. So nobody's getting $100,000 in federal student loans from an undergraduate degree. So anytime you're looking at a borrower who has in excess of $30,000 or $40,000 in debt, it's necessarily coming from them having borrowed um, graduate plus loans, which is the um, essentially a limitless borrowing program that graduate students are able to borrow from. So now where does the, you know, the majority of that debt come from? I don't have those statistics offhand. I mean, business schools, law schools, um, academic programs, of course, they're all, um, they're all expensive, maybe even equally so. And um, the probably depends on the, the distribution of enrollment in those programs, which I don't have offhand. Okay, so um, I remember you writing somewhere a while back that um, I guess at the beginning of the pandemic when we were talking about when the, the first versions of this loan forgiveness stuff came, you were making the point that the people most likely to default on their student debt only owe a fairly small amount and they owe a small amount because they probably went to community college and they owe a small amount because they weren't going to some crazy expensive school. Um, and so you were in favor of relieving a little debt, but not a lot. Can you sort of yeah. walk through all that? Definitely. So, you know, I, I, you know, in years past, I've been kind of, um, accused of being the student loan crisis denier, um, <laughs> which is not a specially flattering title, but maybe it's a bit true. Um, but if there is a crisis, it's actually for these people with small balances. And what it is, is a complete, is a non-completion crisis. Um, so when you borrow to make investment in yourself, get the degree, and then go out in the labor market and have the extra earnings that comes from it, you're in a great spot, right? That That's how it's supposed to work. It makes sense. If you borrow and then don't finish your degree, which is the case for a lot of these very low-balanced borrowers, then you've essentially got a really expensive credit card bill that is very difficult for you to repay. Um, so this is where a lot of the challenges for people who are struggling, um, we see them have the highest default rates and probably the greatest impact on their you know, financial well-being. I have proposed in the past that we do something to help those very low-balanced borrowers, but there's, a, there's another piece I want to stick in there too before we get there. It's important to realize, and it's very often missing from the discussion, that we already have in place forgiveness programs to help borrowers who have balances that are unaffordable relative to their income. So this has been for the past about 20 years or so. We've made it such that if a borrower owes a monthly amount that is high relative to the income that they're bringing home, they can pay a reduced monthly payment without penalty. And then if they stay in that position of having relatively unaffordable debts over a long period of time, 10, 20, 25 years, depending on which group or which program they're eligible for, then they have their loans forgiven. So in theory, that should work great, right? I mean, it's it's like, yeah, let's go out, everyone, you know, make a bet on yourself. And if it doesn't work out and it doesn't work out over the long haul, we've got you, right? We, we, we'll take away the debt. Introduces some moral hazard, but it's not terrible. Given how much we rely on the higher education system for social mobility, it makes some sense. So what I proposed was... That, that program that in theory should work really well actually works very poorly. And, and if you followed the news on it, it's called income-driven repayment. 
the administration of it is a mess. And that's largely because the programs themselves were designed in a very sloppy way, a, a incremental change through executive order and legislation so that, you know, any given borrower may be eligible for one program, but not another. And they have different terms and you have to know how to sign up for them. Total mess. What I have proposed is say, okay, here's a compromise. Let's get that program fixed and, you know, replace the set of programs that are a mess with one single, clear, understandable, well-administered program. And the giveaway is, you know, we'll erase something like, I think my proposal was $5,000 in debt. I don't think we need to do anything like that, to be honest with you. It was more of a political um, trade, which is to say, we need this reform of the safety net because the safety net has to work if we're going to rely on a self-finance system of higher education, and it's not. So if we can get to a place where that safety net is working by doing a small giveaway, and it also helps out these borrowers who have been kind of just struggling with these low balances for a long period of time, that seems like a really reasonable political compromise to me. So I, I know you're an economist, uh, labor economist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, so you may want to beg off doing um, any rank punditry here, but <laughs> what what is as, as so I'm a public choice theory kind of guy, you know, and um, uh, so I have theories about why the Democratic Party, not particularly original theories, but I have theories. Uh, why the Democratic Party is so hell-bent on this, right? I mean, if you just go from the numbers, you know, I've been reading you for a while on this stuff. Um, most people don't have student debt because most people don't go to college, right? right. Most people who, the, the, the truly needy, um, who are in trouble with debt, uh, you can make a much more powerful moral case for car loan forgiveness um, because if it's sort of uh, more universally applicable you know uh benefits um and because lower middle class middle class and lower middle class and poor people who are struggling um need their cars more than they need to pay off their student debt right and anyway we can go on with all that stuff and yet this seems to have captured the imaginations this idea of forgiving student debt of the democratic party particularly the progressive base of the democratic party in ways a lot of other much less I don't know if the right word is regressive, but much, much. Yeah, that's the right word. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like much less regressive ideas um, uh, you would think would, would be more popular, but yet they're not. So what is your, you can be as, as cynical or as, as uh, high minded as you like, but what is your theory about why this has captured the hearts and minds of the Democrats the way it has? Well, I'll give you the cynical answer first, and then I'll and then I'll shift back into high-minded. But I think the cynical reason is pretty obvious. And you know, heading into midterms and um, you know the next presidential cycle, I think Democrats are lacking something to really campaign on that they can hang their hat on and say this is something that was accomplished. I think that's particularly concerning for a a block of voters, which is young, educated, and um, it's not that these folks won't vo vote Democrat if they were to vote, but maybe they won't be particularly inspired to vote. And I think that's the that's basically what the party is banking on. That yeah, this is a policy that's not hugely popular outside of this specific group that's affected by it, but it must be the case that they believe that they need to motivate 
that specific population who would benefit from this to get out to, you know, to vote in midterms and beyond. So that's my theory, um, because otherwise the, the public support for this does just doesn't justify what they're doing, nor does the, the policy grounds. So how about, um, I'll switch to a, a bit more generous interpretation. I think that generally when we see people arguing for this and in less of like a nitty gritty political sense and in terms of like, this is what Biden should do tomorrow and he should do it through executive action and more in a kind of a big think way, they're often pairing student loan cancellation with free college. And I think that there is a sense that a lot of people have that the idea of a self-financed system of higher education is truly just unjust or un, un, undesirable, maybe even. Um, and so student loan cancellation is kind of a piece of undoing um, this system that we have in place today. And so I think most people who are proponents of this would also be pushing for free college if it were in any way politically viable, but it's not. Um, student loan cancellation remains on the table um, even while other things have fallen off because it's doable, even though it's potentially doable in an illegal manner. <laughs> um, there is a sense that Biden can do this with uh, the stroke of a pen, as Senator Warren has reminded us over and over. And so I think that's why it has stayed on the table. It's a bit nonsensical to do student loan cancellation alone without greater reform that actually undoes the system of self-financed higher education. But, um, you know, people who are in favor of this will remind you it's the only thing we can do right now. Um, so I think that's I think it's probably a, a bit of both of those things. I, although I will say in terms of Biden's motivation, my sense is that Biden doesn't like this plan at all. Um, you know, he was kind of the last to put out a student loan cancellation um, program. Um, platform during the Democratic primaries. And his was the most modest proposal was just to cancel $10,000 in debt. And then there's have been moments when he's spoken somewhat candidly about it um, in a town hall event um, after he was elected in particular, where he said something like, no, I'm not canceling student debt, giving away money to Harvard and Penn and Yale graduates. So <laughs> I think he appreciates the concerns with this from a policy perspective. Um, and my guess is that what is motivating the attention to it now is political concerns from his perspective. But then in the advocate community, it's this more, more high-minded, big think explanation. So I, I want to get to you know the why, the why's and what for's about college, about universities. But um, so I, I have not done any deep digging on this, but largely from sort of anecdotal experience and 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 reading and stuff, I I agree with everything. You know, I, I'm basically subscribed to the, your explanations, but it also seems to me that, you know, there is a entrenched educational public sector unions, teachers unions, uh, uh, education schools um, kind of network, right? And that I've talked to enough public school teachers who and read about enough public school teachers who a lot of major urban school systems have these deals where if you go and you get a master's, then you get this automatic large pay bump. Right. And it kind of feels to me like there is this sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of like amazing amount of the COVID relief money actually went to sort of bail out heavily leveraged public sector, um, unions and, and state bureaucracies that were wildly in debt. Um, rather than actually dealing with anything like 
COVID preparedness or any of that kind of stuff. And so anyway, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it feels to me a little bit like this is another example of privatizing the gains of these incentive structures that these bureaucracies have while socializing the costs out. And um, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I, I suspect that a big chunk of the people who go and get these grad degrees work in either the administrative or some like sort of the administrative ranks of higher education or K through 12 in public schools. Um, and that's the one, those are the kind of careers where you aren't going to earn back quite as much as some lawyer or doctor will. And so you could say, well, they incentivized me to go get these, these graduate degrees. I got the pay bump, but it still, it barely covers what I borrowed to get these things. So maybe this quote unquote, the system or millionaires and billionaires should pay for it. Do you have any sense whether that's just a blind guess or is there some some merit to that? Well, there's some merit to it. There's another piece that's missing in that story. The, you know, the income-based repayment program that I talked about previously is actually super generous for people who work in public service. Public service very broadly defined or the government or nonprofit sector. So somebody who goes to get maybe, you know, like a, a, a teaching certificate, a teaching master's degree, and then goes to teach at a public school is eligible to make reduced payments for just 10 years and then have any balance remaining forgiven after that time. So people are getting huge balances remaining th or, um, forgiven through that program already. That's not, you know, something that we're aspiring to. That's something that's already happening today. And the, um, Biden's Department of Education actually has made pretty big strides in making those programs more generous just through incremental changes through executive action. And so there certainly is an incentive for people to spend a lot on these degrees um, and and ha have no, no in advance that the um, ticket is going to be picked up by taxpayers. In fact, years ago, when these programs first started, Georgetown Law School got in a lot of trouble because they were um, sort of exploiting. Well, I guess some other non-economists would say they were exploiting the system. Economists would say they were responding to the incentives in the, <laughs> the system. But they were basically advising their students when they were in school, the ones that anticipated going into public service, saying, you know, you can borrow essentially unlimited money through the um, federal student loan program, and you're not going to have to pay it back because you're immediately going to enroll in this income-driven repayment system, and then you'll have your huge balance forgiven after 10 years. And so borrowers in that system know that every incremental dollar that they borrow is not a dollar that they're going to have to pay back. So um, I don't think there's any sort of, um, you know, conspiracy here by the right. um, I wasn't saying there sector. was either. It's sort <laughs> yeah. of like another yeah. part of this is the way the system works is that the systems respond to incentives as much as individuals do. Exactly. Yeah. So what, so uh, a friend of mine, a uh, friend of the podcast, Alex Tabarak, uh, you know, he makes this, um, it's one of these, you know, it's one of these things that is very persuasive when you're actually talking to them about it. And then you have a hard time <laughs> clinging to the persuasion uh, long after. But he argues that the rise in higher ed in higher education costs have almost entirely to do with Baumol's disease, and that it's not, you know, it's not some sinister kind of thing or bad leadership. And he makes a good argument about, again, it's a persuasive argument um, when he's, you know, using the examples of haircuts in various countries across the world or, you know, symphony quartets or whatever. 
but I still don't believe it at some gut level. And um, I can't say it to his face because he'll just talk me out of it. But <laughs> what is what is your explanation? Because like the reason I bring this up, I probably jumped the gun a little bit. But the reason I bring it up is that one of the arguments you're really starting to hear is, you know, this really isn't a bailout for the students so much as it's a bailout for the universities because they just continue to keep racking up costs and they benefit from uh, all of this inflation that that forgiving student debt contributes to. So what is your just general added explanation for why college has gotten so expensive? Okay, so I'll give you two. Um, so the first one is that we have been shouting from the rooftops to Americans that a college degree is part of the American dream. That without it, you are, you know, not a success. You need the white picket fence. You need the diploma hanging on the wall. And it's just kind of become a necessary part of American life. Of course, not everybody has one, but I think most people would agree that that's the message that we've been sending out to people. So now when you send that message out to people and then give them kind of a blank check to say, here, go and pay for something, um, you, you're going to get them to sign on the dotted line and, and, and they're going to be insensitive to what price they're being charged because they've been told that this is kind of just something you've got to do, right, in order to, to succeed and not only to, to be successful, but that it will be a golden ticket for you right? Just sign on the dotted line. Um, don't worry about shopping around. Don't worry about being a critical consumer. Just get a degree and then and you're going to be great, right? And so when you have that, it's like drives a huge increase in demand. Uh, people are willing to spend more than they would otherwise. And so I, I believe that that has allowed institutions to increase prices over time in a way that they would not have if we'd had a different um, a different conversation about training and education in our economy, right? If we had been celebrating um, trades as a, a pathway to the American dream or to financial well-being or, or prosperity, I think we'd have a, a different situation on our hands. So the other reason, um, and this is a little bit more optimistic, is that college is selling a product or a service, I should say, that is very expensive, but is still a great bargain. <laughs> so in a market, they can continue to increase their price until we get to the point where they're no longer selling an investment opportunity that's a good deal. All the studies that try to estimate what a college degree is worth, all I mean, they all suffer from different problems, right? It's really challenging to, to measure what is a college degree worth. But they all suggest that the returns are huge and positive. Right. So if you think of the money that you spend on education as an investment in yourself and then that investment yields, let's say let's pull the study from um, Georgetown that says it's a, an extra million dollars over the course of your lifetime. If you're paying hundred thousand dollars for a degree that's worth a million dollars to you in the future, it's a bargain. <laughs> and so colleges selling this thing that is literally worth a million dollars, selling it at at $100,000 are, are giving you a bargain and they're able to continue to increase the price to the extent that, that what they're giving you is worth far more than that. And so in a way, it's not too expensive. And in, in some instances it is, right? We're talking averages, right? Um, if you get into Harvard and they're charging you $60,000 a year, you're probably still going to get a huge return on that. $60,000 is not too expensive to go to Harvard. 
$60,000 to go to some no name, you know, fancy liberal arts school with um, not, not strong faculty, but with fancy, you know, gym facilities and things like that, that's too expensive, right? So um, part of it is that college is not necessarily just flat out too expensive, like people will often say. Uh, did you ever read Brian Kaplan's book, uh, The Case Against Education? Yes, I did. And I've had Brian on my podcast as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like Brian. I mean, he's a little intense. Uh, uh, I think he overstates the case for our, for rhetorical effect. But, you know, the, the, so you, you clearly know this argument better than I do, but the whole, um, you know, sheepskin effect or whatever, right? Which is, um, and so the example he often used, used on this podcast years ago was, um, uh, would you rather, you know, would you rather get all of the training from a survival class, um, but without getting the diploma, if you're going to be stuck on a deserted Island? And the answer is obviously yes. Right. You'd rather know the stuff about how to like get water out of a cactus than you know, have the piece of paper that says you do. Um, but he's claims in his, his analysis that like, uh, the return on earnings that you get um, from four-fifths or five-sixths of an elite education are non-existent, right? So, like, if you, for whatever family tragedy reasons, you go for uh, seven of the eight trimester, or seven of the eight of the eight semesters at Princeton, but then you have to drop out to deal with a family problem, whatever, you don't get seven-eighths of the return on that diploma. And so part of the problem that we live, part of the argument is, is that we live in a society where diplomas are kind of like the same reason people hire McKinsey. It's not so much to guarantee success, but a hedge against failure. And you say, hey, look, I, you know, yeah, he turned out to be an embezzler and a schmuck, but, you know, I hired him from from Harvard. So, you know, what are you going to do? Right. And right. Um, it's a way to sort of say you you check boxes rather than actually find talent. Um, where do you come down on that? Because it seems to me that, that, you know, having just sent my one and only lovely daughter to college, you know, we've, I've spent the last couple of years thinking long and hard about this stuff. And I generally think that as long as you have a good experience in college and you want, you go to a college that people generally have heard of, you'll be fine. And right. people overthink this stuff. Um, right. But where do you come down on all that? Well, I think there's a lot of truth in what Brian says. I don't think it explains the entire dynamic. And of course, I mean, our higher education system is very diverse, right? So there's a lot of different experiences and pathways that can be explained with different um, different explanations. But Brian is absolutely right that if you get, you know, seven-eighths of a degree, and in theory, you've gotten seven-eighths of the skills that come with a degree, yet you will not get seven-eighths of the earnings bump that comes from the degree. Um, and what I appreciate from um, Brian's work is he points out that it is completely individually rational for people to go on and continue to get diplomas, right? Even though it's kind of perverse and that what we're doing is just signaling to employers that we have the skills that they need. Um, but that collectively, socially is where we should step back and say, should we continue to be subsidizing this activity that is really just a very expensive way of sorting into different jobs? Now, things have, are changing a, a bit. So 
Um, yes, seven eighths of a Harvard degree is, is definitely not worth seven eighths of the the wage bump that comes from it. But there are places where um, fractions of degrees are starting to pay dividends in the market. And I think in those instances, we are seeing the education actually imparting skills on people rather than just serving as the sorting mechanism. Um, one example, it's kind of an extreme example, is um, a few years back, you might have been reading in the newspapers about this innovation of coding boot camps. These are alternatives to going and getting um, computer science bachelor's degrees where you learn, you, you know, you sit and you learn how to code and that's it. There are no general education requirements. Um, you don't write any papers. You learn how to code. And then these um, entities place people into coding jobs. So these people have less than a degree, but they're getting returns that are commensurate with um computer science degrees. And so there, you know, there are instances like that where we're getting closer to um, education being a mechanism for imparting skill rather than imparting a credential that is used as a signal in the labor market. The other changing dynamic is that we've got an incredibly tight labor market right now. Um, and it, like employers are trying to get creative and in keeping people that they've hired and finding new people because it's harder than ever to, to get people hired. We have seen some big companies have, you know, some hiring initiatives where they're shifting away from hiring people with degrees. Um, and I think they kind of sell this as this, you know, this um, benevolent act that they're doing, right? That they're trying to make sure that they're more inclusive and not just be elitist and only hire people with degrees. The truth is they can pay people less if they don't have college degrees. And I think that companies are realizing that this model that they've used in the past of only um, screening employees based on whether they have a degree is a really expensive way to go. Um, and that if they put more effort into actually sorting employees based on their skills and the ability they have to contribute to the company, um, then they can get cheaper labor. And so putting a little more money into the search process um, reduces their their wage costs. And we're starting to see that. Big companies are, are doing just that. And as, you know, if we continue to see this tight labor market extend, I think we'll get companies getting more and more creative, which takes less of the prestige away from having a degree. Um, we can think of the degree as less of a golden ticket and celebrate other pathways to career, which I think is good for everyone. It's also good for the taxpayer who's been on the hook for paying for this um, very expensive signaling system. And maybe we can get closer to the ideal level of education that Brian talks about as being far less than what we've got today. Um, how much does, and this is for my friend Shoshana, uh, how much does this have to do with, with the rise of sort of occupational licensing? I mean, where you just, you require, there are lots of jobs today that, you know, just your college degree is required for no obvious reason other than the fact you know like like put it in my world um you know my colleague steve hayes he went to columbia journalism school i know lots of people went to columbia journalism school i've spoken at columbia journalism school i think journalism school is garbage and um not that you don't learn anything but that the the i'm sure they learn some things and i'm sure some of the things they learn are actually useful but um the way it works professionally is it, it's sort of like the Meister's Guild from Game of Thrones, where 
people have a huge investment in the value and the prestige of having a Columbia Journalism School degree. And as they rise in the ranks of the professional classes, they have a vested interest in hiring other people who have the degree because that is that it, it perpetuates the value of the thing. And so, again, it's sort of a public choice kind of theory kind of thing. And it creates essentially a professional guild. And um, I don't think there's ever going to get fixed for journalism. Journalism is going to implode on its own anyway. But um, the idea that there are all of these technical jobs, um, you know, like inspectors, you know, safety inspectors or whatever, where even if you have a college degree, you still have to go through all of the training to get that job anyway, as you should. Um, um, how much of that is just sort of a, a, a sort of, again, a sort of protection racket, bureaucratic inertia thing? And how much do you think it actually contributes to the, the rise in college costs? I don't think there's any good estimates of how much it's it's driven it, but I would say it's a substantial part of what's happening. It's happening through the former um, regulation, you know, like the credential space requir requiring credentials for different occupations, but also informally, you know, um, I always use enterprise car rental when I travel for for work and I'm not paying the bill. And it's because the people who walk you to your car and, and do the little walk around, they're, they're really fantastic and friendly. And that may be related to the fact that they have to have a bachelor's degree in order to do that job. Yeah. And so, <laughs> um, you know, the fact that companies, um, regulatory systems have all evolved such that it's utilizing the degree as a screening mechanism um, perhaps unnecessarily, I'll say definitely unnecessarily. The only thing that's going to push back against that is a shift in labor market dynamic. And I used to talk about that and that was kind of, you know, pie in the sky. Maybe someday um, things will change such that the individual um, is sufficiently sought after to be able to be considered for different jobs without that credential. But now we're getting to that place that, you know, the inability of employers to hire as many people as they would like today may in fact drive that innovation, which is to take away some of those gatekeeper institutions like Columbia Journalism or, or whatever. And, and yeah, and again, it's worth noting, you know, if my son wants to be a journalist and he gets into Columbia Journalism School, I will send him because that is the pathway. And yet collectively, that is suboptimal for society, right? That we have these gatekeepers um, institutions in place. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, uh, there's no getting around the evolutionary biology of this. Is parents will do things for their own children, right? Um, that they will not do for other people's children because <laughs> that's just the that's baked into the ontological reality of of, of our lives. Um, no, but at this point, I, I've written about this a little bit. I mean, this this point about education um, being uh, people don't get educations. Like the reason why Jews. Um, want their kids to become doctors and lawyers is not because it'll make them get rich. It's because they know it'll keep them from being poor, which is psychologically a very different thing, right? It's a hedge against poverty more than it is a guarantee. Because if you really wanted your kid to get rich, you'd say, go, you know, be a somewhat, you know, Asbergery computer programmer and go to Silicon Valley and program out of some guy's garage kind of thing. But that's, that's pie in the sky, you know, a, a law degree or a, or meta or a medical degree, you travels with you and it's safe and you know, you can raise at minimum a middle-class family and that kind of thing. And so your book, which I, I apologize, I have not apologize. I've not read it's making college pay. And I, um, 
was joking, alas, when you when I was saying it was should be seen as a vindictive punishing kind of thing. Um, like <laughs> no, that's hold accurate. Them down and make them pay. Um, but <laughs> that's so, what I had in mind. So uh, but a, I assume it's some sort of double entendre, right? Because it is, it's yes. also like, how do you get value out of it? Exactly. So, like, yes. Um, let's say uh, I had you on this podcast two years ago, and um, and I was starting the process of figuring out how to send my kid to college. What would you say to me about how to make college pay for her? Okay. So the number one thing is don't take as a given that a college degree is going to be a, a an automatic pass to a career that allows you to pay back your student loans <laughs> without going into dire financial straits. Um, basically, the idea in that book is it's teaching you how to shop for college um, as a critical consumer. So um, a lot of people don't realize that there's data available. It, it, it's also awesome. we are a very dog friendly podcast, so <laughs> okay. it's fine. Uh, All right, then it's not it's not one of mine. Um, so uh, that's my dog. dog she's have? really she's really cute. She's a she's a mix. <laughs> a rich a ethnic cocktail. Mix. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, what, you know, what the book describes is basically for someone who really needs to ensure that their degree is going to pay financial dividends, which is most people, right, in America. Most people aren't going to just enrich themselves intellectually when they go to college. Um, they're going to, you know, look at the federal the the data resources that are made available by the government to look at what previous students from different majors at different institutions are earning now that they're in the labor market. And it gives the idea that this is how you should be shopping for college. Um, and if you're going to borrow to pay, and you probably should if you're eligible to borrow because interest rates are so low, how do you ensure that you're going to be able to comfortably pay back those loans? And, you know, one popular misconception is that where you go to college matters so much, right? Like we've got... Um, Jonah, maybe your daughter went through this recently, the kids posting on Instagram where they go to college, right? They do these big fancy reveals and things. Um, and we've just celebrated this choice of where you've been accepted, where you get in to go so much. And the reality is that what you study in college actually has a much greater impact on your earnings after you finish than where you go to school. And so we we talk barely at all about that, right? And we've got people going to college and giving them advice to follow their passion, which is a beautiful sentiment, but not a practical um, financial recommendation for the vast majority of people who go to college to get a financial return. Um, and so it's, it seems obvious that we should be making decisions in this way, but it's absolutely not the culture of college decision-making to think of this as a financial trade-off. It also has repercussions for a lot of the debates about uh, disparities in income between men and women, right? It's if 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 your income potential depends enormously on what you majored in, which would make some sense, right? And you are more, you know, and and you know, my my uh, my basic take on the gender disparity stuff is that a lot of it is just the inevitable consequence of people making different choices and the idea that women will make different choices than men does not strike me as like wildly sexist given that on average women are smarter than men and you know <laughs> and they, but they also just have different different you know in the aggregate different priorities that are not going to yield 
statistically mirror images of each other in, in large population pools. And, um, um, but, um, at the same time, you know, full disclosure, rejected from every college I applied to, and then ended up going <laughs> to an all women's liberal arts college where I didn't think at all about what I was going to do for a living. Um, um, what's wrong with actually thinking of college the way at least some people originally intended it as a sort of a, a, you know, the liberal arts, you know, the liberal arts are not supposed to be career prep. Um, they're supposed to be the things that we, we teach people in a free society and how to protect and defend a free society. And, um, uh, that seems to have gone completely by the wayside. I, I assume that is thinking of it in those terms really probably is in it a function of affluence and privilege in a way, well, that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, a lovely way to think of education and, you know, I, I'm somebody who stayed in, in school for as long as I possibly could before I had to go out and get a real job. Right. So I certainly appreciate the value of education for education's sake. But if you look at the data, 90% of people who go to college go for one single reason, that's for career advancement and to make money. So the narrative of, you know, follow your passion, indulge in liberal arts, just kind of sit and enrich yourself intellectually, it's a lovely idea, but it's inconsistent with the financial reality for most Americans. And so I think we do a disservice to people when we pretend that most people are like the elite who do have the financial privilege of being able to indulge in that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to indulge in education for education's sake, but it's just not real for most people. Um, and I think we, I think part of the angst that we have about student loans today is that we have sold education in the way that you just described. And so people imagined that they can go and do just that, just sort of simmer in this educational environment and sip espresso with their professors. And then magically it would all work out financially, right? Like, cause that was kind of an afterthought. Um, it, but it doesn't, it doesn't work out and it, um, it doesn't work out in the way that people had imagined. And you have to actually make choices that are based on financial trade-offs. If that is a priority for you, if you have a trust fund, you can do whatever you want. And I'm not really particularly worried about, about what you choose. <laughs> and just to be clear, I didn't have a trust fund. I was just a slacker, which is a little different. <laughs> so, uh, um, getting back to the, the student debt thing for just a second, I re be remiss in not asking you how you respond to, you know, the, the claims are made. I hear it on, I'm a, I'm an NPR addict. I, I listen to a lot of different podcasts on the student debt stuff Me and too. <laughs> like so many issues in life. Uh, I'm not saying it's illegitimate or whatever, but it is, it tells you something about the politics of this stuff. The, the advocates for canceling student debt, relieving student debt, making college free, they always lean into the fact that, that, that African-American women or, or minority women, women of color, um, hold a disproportionate share of the debt. And that, so therefore that creates a greater moral imperative to do something on their behalf. I, I, the moral imperative argument you can address or not, but like, what are the actual numbers about all that and why, why is that the case? Okay. So yes, it's absolutely true that African-American and Black students take on more debt than similarly situated 
um, white students. Um, we know that there are smaller intergenerational transfers for, um, in black families relative to white families, even for the same level of income and wealth. And so the result is that we do get a disproportionate amount of borrowing amongst black students. And they do have trouble paying back their loans, in part because they're earning less in the labor market after. So it's absolutely the tr true that there's a disparity um, in terms of the way that student debt affects different um, racial groups. The idea that student loan cancellation is the best way to address the racial wealth gap and um, racial wage inequality is just sort of nonsensical because racial wealth inequality is driven in large part by groups of um, groups of Americans that have not participated in education whatsoever. And so I like to say, you know, trying to address racial wealth inequality through um, student loan cancellation would sort of be like saying, okay, we want to address um, gender pay disparity. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll go out and give a pay bump to all female CEOs out there, right? It's like, well, mathematically, would it have an effect? Um, yeah, I guess it would. It would pull up the average pay amongst women, right? But it just totally misses the point altogether. Um, you know, Black Americans who have gone to college, earned a degree, and maybe sitting on a lot of debt are probably better off than the vast majority of Black Americans in our economy. And so it's, you know, there's some truth in the argument, like, like anything. It's just that the idea that the solution is to address it through the higher ed finance system is kind of crazy. Um, now, to be a bit generous, uh, those who are in favor would say, yeah, Beth, that's the only thing we can do. Um, I just don't think that's a good enough argument. You know, I think we need to aim a bit higher. Yeah, you know, it's funny uh, when, when the way you describe it about this, it's the only thing we can do, right? I mean, it's like all the other levers aren't working here's one lever we can pull so like it's you know it's like the drunk looking for his car keys where the light is good you <laughs> go you know go where you can it reminds me a little bit there's a uh famous book by uh is he an economist or a sociologist or an economic sociologist uh james scott called seeing like a state and it's this very grand history of human development where he argues that part of the history of the growth of the state is making citizens legible and what he means by that is like you that's how you get last names that's how you get ids you get all of these things so because you need to be able to better organize people into professions into, into uh taxable entities and all of these kinds of things and so modernity in one way if you're seeing it through the eyes of the state is making the population more and more legible to to the state and it seems to me that there, i keep thinking about that because it, it feels like you know, there's a reason why the middle class gets more attention politically, generally speaking, than the lower classes. The middle class has the political resources, economic and political resources, to be visible to politicians in a way. They can take a couple hours out to go to the town hall meeting and they can afford and they have something to protect with their nimbyism and all that kind of thing. And and so it seems to me that like you can make the case that the reason why they're focusing on on student debt is because the people with large amounts of student debt are wildly visible within the ranks of government, the Democratic Party. They're in the room all the time. I, I, this is not a pejorative thing. It's just like it's 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 it, it explains the sort of the sociology of it in a way, because everyone will know someone with a lot of student debt, even though statistically speaking, 
most people of color don't have student debt because they didn't go to college, right? But those aren't the people who are in the room because those people are just struggling to get by as lower income people. Um, anyway, it's just a weird observation that came to my mind. You know, it, it's interesting. If, if you're a um, tweeter, uh, somebody who spends a lot of time on Twitter, you would, of course, think that everybody has six-figure student loan burdens and folks on there tend to be very vocal about this issue. Um, but I don't think there's any confusion amongst policymakers, to be honest with you, about the real nature of this problem. And, you know, maybe I'm, I'm um, being too generous in, in thinking about how they... Um, how they decide what priorities to have. But I can't imagine that the noise amongst this minority is really what's driving this group. You know, I, I really have to believe that it's that there is a belief that we need something. We, meaning Democrats, would need something to get this group, this young, uh, educated 20 to 40 group out to vote in elections. And this must be the way to do it. Or alternatively, you know, before this became such a hot issue, I think, you know, politicians were saying this because without thinking about it for very long, it does sound good. Right. Or, or I think it does. You talk to a lot of people who don't know much about it and they say, oh, yeah, you know, people with student debt are really struggling. Got to do something. It's bad for the economy. Those people, you know, they're eating soup, living in their parents' basements. And so I think if you don't think about it for very long, it sounds good. And I think some politicians are capitalizing on that. Um, but, you know, m maybe that's maybe that's overly generous to, to not be blaming the loud voices of the minority that have this debt. But that's my interpretation. So um, what do you say? Because I, so I tweeted something along the lines of there's a better moral case to forgive car loan payments than there is student loan payments. And um, for the reasons we've been discussing and um, a friend of mine who's a major media figure, who's sort of a prominent liberal major media figure, reached out to me through DMs on Twitter and was like, you make a really interesting good point here. I would say in response that maybe the reason why we have an obligation to these people is as a society, as an education system, we've told them that they should make any sacrifice possible to go to college and now they're drowning in debt. And so don't we sort of owe them because of the bait and switch? Um, uh, I agree with the first part of the premise that we've told too many people that they should do pay any price and, and uh, endure any burden. But I don't know. I still don't know that morally or policy wise, the second part of it follows and that therefore we owe them um, a bailout. Um, but what do you say when you hear people make that that argument? Well, you know, I think that's I think that's a uh, a nice kind of nuanced question. Uh, the reality, I think, is that people feel kind of taken by this system, and that they they've borrowed, they were promised this golden ticket. Um, but the reality is that most people got the golden ticket, right? If you went and finished your degree, um, you're actually doing quite well. Data tells us that people on average are spending about 4% of their monthly income on student loan repayment. So I think there's a lot of angst. People don't like that they're having to pay back their loans, but I don't think that we've really bait and switched most people. I think most people have gotten the system to work for them in the way that it was imagined. But I also think people don't like the system, <laughs> the self-financed with debt system. And then, you know, for the people who did get something like a bait and switch or just got made an investment that didn't pay off, the, you know, for whatever reason, we already are helping those people, right? That's like the piece that's missing from the conversation every time. It's that 
I absolutely, even as, you know, I, I, I represent the conservative end of this conversation. Um, there aren't a lot of people who are considered conservative in the higher ed policy space, but even I believe that we need a safety net so that, you know, if people make an investment in themselves and it doesn't pay off, that we're not just leaving them, you know, up a creek without a paddle. And the reason I say that is, of course, I think we need individual responsibility. We need to encourage people to um, make good choices for themselves and and pay, you know, like experience the consequences of those decisions. But our um, system of economy also relies really heavy on the idea that people have access to mechanisms of social mobility um, such that they can do for themselves. And higher education is a critical part of that. So if that fails, I do think that we, you know, are, are on the hook to some degree and we already are. <laughs> That's why we have income-driven repayment. That's why we're already forgiving tons of student loans every year through the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, through income-driven repayment. Um, but it doesn't work well. That should work better than it does. But to you know pretend that it doesn't exist is is really um, not a good faith argument. If you could, um, I know we're hitting the um, the hour mark here, but if you if if you could snap your fingers and impose one one or two reforms on higher ed today um um you know i i don't mean like make every make sure everybody takes freshman composition which that would not be among my my top yeah, list anyway but, don't worry uh, but you know in terms of of improving access improving cost um all that kind of stuff what would it be Okay, I'll give you two things. I think, number one, we need to make the repayment system work more seamlessly for borrowers. This is going to sound wonky, but I think what we should do is um, have student loan repayment come through the tax system. So instead of having to pay a student loan servicer, you just pay a percent of your income towards the balance that you took out through the IRS when you pay your taxes every year. It's easy. You make sure it's not, a, you know, it's affordable because it's a percent of your income. The other is I think we need to stop making loans to graduate students. The idea of the federal loan program is that there would be no private market that would make these loans available to students. I don't think that's a reasonable argument anymore when we're talking about graduate students. People who go to graduate school, especially professional schools, are making good money after they finish. And I believe that in the absence of a federal loan program, we would get banks come in and make probably nearly as many loans as, as we're making today. And the ones that they wouldn't make are the ones that are putting borrowers into bad financial positions. They're not going to pay for a master's degree in basket weaving, and maybe that's a good thing. And presumably some of these universities with these just gargantuan endowments could self-finance some of this kind of stuff too, yep. right? I mean, yeah. um, maybe not every small undercapitalized university could, but we got a lot of universities. Um, um, again, I, I'm just thinking about like, what the comment section is going to come after me about not asking. Um, <laughs> so one of the arguments you hear a lot is that, and the Wall Street, I think it was the Wall Street Journal actually did a really infuriatingly good piece about this, about, about there are some grad programs that are, I'm not a big fan of the phrase predatory lending, but I, I, there are places where I think it is more defensible than other places. And, um, but, there are some of these grad programs, like I think Columbia had this. Yes, this yes. Master of Fine Arts and Film kind of thing that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars that had you know pennies on the dollar <laughs> returns of your on the investment. Um, you know, 
what are the, I mean, what, how much, how much of what you, what a, what a, someone of a skeptical bent would agree is actually predatory kind of lending that, that is not morally just morally or financially justifiable out there. Oh gosh. I I'd say lots of the, the federal loan program could be classified as predatory lending. I mean, so the, a characteristic to the federal loan program is that the amount that you're able to borrow doesn't depend at all on what you're studying or where you're going. So imagine you have like a mortgage company going out and saying, okay, come apply for a home loan. And, you know, the amount that you can afford to repay, the value of your house, none of that matters. We'll just give you a loan for however much you want up to some predetermined maximum. (laughs) We would consider that predatory lending, except that's exactly the way that we have structured the federal loan program. And so the idea that we we don't constrain people from borrowing based on what is likely to be affordable for them, people think of that as a virtue of the federal lending program but it's absolutely part of what's gotten us into the situation that we've got today. The, the idea that there's no uh, what we call underwriting, right? The idea, we're not looking at a degree and saying, okay, we'll, we'll give you $10,000 for that basket weaving degree because we think maybe we'll be able to pay that back, but we're not going to give you $60,000. We don't do that at all. And that's pretty crazy. And predatory would not be a, a wrong way of describing that. So, but... Correct me if I'm misremembering this, and I should have done more homework before adding on. But like Obama, the Obama administration moved a lot of the private financing onto the federal system, right? I mean, there used to be much more robust private. So really, really great question. Okay, so this is a uh, this is something that comes up a lot. Conservatives will often say, especially when I go to testify, say like, "Oh, we shouldn't have, you know, taken all out all the private sector out of the federal student loan program. That's why we've got all the problems we have in place today." It sounds right, but it's actually totally wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because even when we had federal or um, private loan companies involved in the federal loan program. They, it wasn't actually a market, and they weren't doing that underwriting process. They were basically just doing the dirty work for the Department of Education um, rather than them financing the loans through treasuries. They were using these third parties as contractors to finance the loans. So the loan terms were the same. The interest rate was the same. They didn't you know, make any differentiation across you know, different degrees or anything like that. They were just carrying out the work that now the Department of Education is doing themselves. So it's kind of like like hiring an, an outside contractor to come in and, you know, clean the facilities or hiring a janitor on staff, right? Like it's, it doesn't make a big difference practically. And, and that's what happened. It's a really common misunderstanding um, that that has driven some of what's happened today. Um, it's, it's actually just not true, though. No, that's helpful. So, I mean, it's, it was all so essentially it was always backstopped by the federal government anyway is it was right. always backstopped right so basically the department of education said okay citibank you can go out and make federal student loans here's the interest rate you're going to charge here's how much you're going to let people borrow um you service those loans and then if somebody defaults on those loans we'll actually make you whole we'll give you the money so they were really just doing kind of um, the the logistical work of making the loans for Department of Education. So it's a good deal if you can get it. Um, yeah, it was a great deal. That's why we took it away <laughs> from them. <laughs> um, but isn't there something, I mean, I'm just, uh, the reason I brought it up is because isn't there a, something a little creepy about the federal government telling you what, 
you know, this is an approved major or this is an approved graduate degree and this isn't. Um, I mean, how do you how do you keep from the politicization of that where you have bureaucrats saying, well, of course, you can borrow money to get a degree in social justice, but you can't in criminal justice or whatever. Um, um, what would be your safeguards to make sure that you didn't have that kind of game playing? I think it's a math problem, basically, uh-huh. you know, so you are when, economist, yeah. yeah, right. I know I was going to give you a boring <laughs> answer. You should have known that. I mean, you know, when a bank underwrites a loan of any other type, they're, they're doing the math problem too, right? They're not allowed to basically take into account, you know, race or where you live or something like that, right? It's a math problem. It's what, what are you expected to pay back based on how much you're earning based on the value of the asset? So the same thing's got to be true. And we have that data. We, it's a kind of a, an innovation in the past decade that we have the data, but we know how much different degrees are worth. But before, before the Obama administration, we didn't know that, but now we can do that. And so we, it is reasonable. We can say strictly based on what students have earned from this program in the past, this is how much we think is affordable for you to borrow. Now, um, can you then go in and modify that say, well, we actually think it's socially important for us to have teachers, so you should be able to borrow more. You could, I would advise against it. And I would say, if we want to subsidize um, different activities, whether it be teaching or arts or whatever it is, um, we should do that through straight subsidies rather than through messing with the student loan program. We really need to get back to- Make the salaries higher and eventually the feedback loop would get into the loan. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Pay people more, give them tax credits, something like that. Keep it clean so that the incentives in the loan program are are closest to what they naturally should be so that people are borrowing what's an appropriate amount. Okay. Um, Beth Akers, uh, my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, uh, author of Game of Loans and uh, Making College Pay. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Jonah. This was really fun. Okay. Um, um, For those of you who've been craving raw, uncut, Colombian flake wonkery. Um, there you have it. Uh, uh, you know, hardcore public policy wonkery um, with only the occasional um, and 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 ex- unjustifiably buffoonish uh, interruptions by me. Um, it was great to have um, Beth Akers on. Been trying to figure this out for a while. Um, by the time you hear this, uh, we already had yet another Dispatch Live, which I'm doing again tonight uh, with the lovely and talented Sarah Isger. Um, I believe that both French and Hayes are off gallivanting um, around, so it'll, I'll be the non-lawyer there, um, which means if anybody um, uses, you know, sprays garlic or holy water around, I'm the only one who won't burst into flames. And um, other than that, I look forward to to, uh, the next exciting episode of The Remnant. And until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.